Welcome to My on Mondays, an explorative approach to the possessive my through narratives, art, and sound. Each Monday brings a new creation and unique perspective. My on Mondays is brought to you by Ming Studios, a contemporary art space and international artist residency program dedicated to the exhibition, experience, and exploration of arts and culture. Along with exhibiting artists from around the world, Ming also serves the community by hosting innovative programs including performances, workshops, screenings, readings, artist talks, and other cultural activities. For more information or if you'd like to participate in My on Mondays, you can visit our website at mingstudios.org. Good morning and welcome to the 44th episode of Mayan Mondays. Today I'm speaking with Scott Schmaljohn, a brand designer, illustrator, and musician from Boise, Idaho. I've known Scott since my teenage years in the late 80s and early 90s. In our discussion, we talk about his involvement in the early punk scene in Boise in bands such as Dissident Militia and State of Confusion, which were central to the formation of the scene. He later went on to form the band Tree People with his brother Pat, Wayne Flower, and Doug Marsh, the founder of Built to Spill. Two more bands, Stuntman and The Hand, followed Tree People, but today we look back to the 80s and discuss what was important about that time, what fueled the local punk scene, and the differences we see with the music scenes of today. Hi, Jen. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I guess I'll just jump right in here. Um, okay. Yeah, so were you actually born in Idaho? Are you an Idaho native? I am. I was born in Pocatello. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Because my parents were going to ISU for grad school. Okay. So I was dropped there, and we were there for a couple of years, so I don't have any memories of those years. Mm -hmm. um, then we moved back to Boise and my mom taught, my dad taught, and then they went to grad school, got their doctors in Colorado. And then we moved back to Boise when I was starting third grade. We lived in marriage student housing and then we moved back here, and they had their degrees and got good jobs, and we moved into a big house in the north end. And I was like, whoa, we get our own rooms? What do we do, win the lottery or something? <laughs> <laughs> Going from, like, me and my brother crammed in a little bedroom mm -hmm. to owning a huge house was quite a transition. Yeah, and, I mean, this was back when... Idaho was actually an affordable place to live, and the North End was right. Was this the North of... End was the ghetto? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I remember our house. It was on Twentieth and Sunset. Me and my dad came from Colorado to after they bought it to put a new roof on it before we moved in, and then they proceeded to remodel every room in the house. So it needed a lot of work. Yeah, I remember the but North was... End being pretty run down. I mean, these big, beautiful, old Victorian houses, but everything kind of in disrepair. Yeah, mm -hmm. back in the good old days. They couldn't <laughs> give houses away in the North End back then. And there was, I think, a government program to 
try to revitalize the north and they were given cash down payments for to purchase houses wow because really? everyone like went to the bench and went out mm-hmm. yeah into the suburbs uh, yeah. yeah, and we were more liberal urban people, so we, mm-hmm. we liked being close to downtown. Yeah, what a great neighborhood to grow up in. Yeah, right. it was awesome. We roamed the hills. You know, back then there was no worry of being kidnapped or killed. Mm-hmm. Or, so we just take off and come home by dinner and take off again and come home by, you know, 10 p.m. or so. So it was awesome. pretty ideal so as you got older and um i i know you basically through the punk scene in Uh boise or the alternative scene i was sort of on the periphery not really super involved but um you know all of us misfits from i was i was living in meridian at the time which was being a different person in meridian at that oh. time was horrible <laughs> yeah because it was just I, I rednecks and you. rich kids and you know and so my crowd ended up just being the sort of misfits and and stoners and and yeah. punk rockers were there at, at the time and which was like maybe five <laughs> a group of five you're kind of younger than me i think aren't you yeah i think so i don't I'm... actually know how old you are I'm so. 56. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm uh, six years younger than you. Oh, and, yeah. And, um, but I remember, I don't remember actually ever when you and I met, but I do remember knowing you and seeing you around. You and your brother Pat were both pretty central to the punk scene in Boise. And, yeah. Um, so I, I'm curious how you guys became involved in in that and i mean just the counterculture in general and and tell me a little bit about um your involvement such as the bands that you were in one of them became pretty um prominent yeah well like you six years before you boise high wasn't very tolerant of alternative people either Mm -hmm. so we kind of had our outcast group as well and uh you know everything from the gays to the foreign exchange students to the the punks to the new waivers anyone who was different was you know of course an outsider because we weren't jocks or or academias so Mm -hmm. we were uh of course there were some academias that were punks too but (laughs) um so you know we kind of i remember i played football in junior high at north when my brother was three years older and when he hit high school he said i'm not playing football anymore it's stupid and i was like yes my football days are numbered i don't have to play forever (laughs) (laughs) so i kind of felt you know social pressure to be cool and play football mm-hmm. and you know tell the social norm line yeah. and then once i hit high school and dropped out of team sports and um started taking guitar lessons and finding alternative music punk rock and skateboarding down to the record exchange and flipping mm-hmm. through the 
the new releases of punk rock in, you know, 1981, we were like, what's this? Black Flag? That sounds cool. You know, before media really even, you know, existed for us, Mm -hmm. per se. Like, there was a little bit of fanzines and stuff, but it really was just kind of getting rolling in 81 with these new, you know, hardcore bands. And just it just clicked for me, like, wow, I can play this music. (laughs) (laughs) It became real reachable. You know, like, before that, I was listening to Led Zeppelin, and and I love Black Sabbath, and experimenting with hallucinogens and, mm-hmm. and but i was like man i can't play guitar like jimmy page or mm. you know any of my favorite bands and then when i started listening to punk rock i was like oh wow i could do that i could write a song today <laughs> so it was partly a matter of convenience <laughs> yeah yeah and it also just clicked with how we all felt Like, you know, it was the Reagan years and Mm -hmm. Reaganomics. They're just starting to put the conservative squeeze on everyone. Mm -hmm. Like, the you know, the welfare queen and all that propaganda that Mm -hmm. started coming out that we're bashing poor people. And, and, you know, the war on drugs, which is basically just a way to criminalize minorities and, and the impoverished and just all this stuff. And, you know, England had their own version with, um, oh, what's her name? Uh, their prime minister Margaret was real Thatcher. conservative. Yeah, yeah, the Thatcher. So all this stuff started coming out. We started becoming politically aware just through, you know, the punk rock albums and the sleeves mm-hmm. and all of the literature that came with it. And like the dead Kennedys, you know, mm-hmm. talking about all these social issues and so we just kind of dove head head first into that and and of course Boise had nothing close to resembling any sort of outlet for live music of that sort yeah by the time by the time I came along in the scene there was a sort of established um venues and so you when you came in you guys were actually the ones who were creating that then yeah. Okay. Well, that I didn't know. Pusshead kind of was the first sort of leader of, you know, he was older than us. So he had the band Septic Death. Mm-hmm. And we kind of, oh, wow, there is a band here. And, mm-hmm. and so we kind of started hanging out with him, skateboarding. And he was from California. He was cool. He knew, you know, had seen Black Flag and all these cool bands. So we kind of globbed onto him. And he, his band, Septic Death, would practice with my first band, Dissident Militia, at my dad's garage because they needed a place to practice. So he was kind of our mentor of sorts. Okay. And he knew all these bands, like he knew the Misfits. Oh, wow. Seven Seconds. So he Mm. started putting on shows at the um, American Legion Hall, which was right by Mm. BSU. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that place? Yeah, yeah. And he 
did some great shows and of course he was an amazing artist so he'd do these amazing punk rock posters so he really kind of energized the scene just through his graphics and his connections with mm-hmm. bands you know he brought great bands here and so as my band Dissident Malicious started playing around this was before my brother joined the band and the and Wayne Flower you know him don't you mm-hmm. or I did he played it's been years I'm sure he doesn't yeah, he, remember me but yeah he was the singer for Dissident Militia and then my brother, he was in Santa Barbara, California, going to college at a community college. So every year when I was in high school, I'd go there when he was going starting school. And I'd hang out with him in Santa Barbara. And we'd skateboard and body surf. And so I got a little taste of the California scene. And there was a lot of punk rock going on then. Sort of sparking up. Went to my first big punk show in LA and that kind of blew me away like oh my god (laughs) Mm -hmm. this is amazing you know Mm -hmm. it's bigger than I ever thought it was so when I'd come back to Boise with my vans and you know you couldn't even get vans in Boise (laughs) everyone thought I was from California (laughs) (laughs) and uh, so we started playing more and then Pat came back from college after his two years. He was really into punk rock. He's a, he was always into alternative writing and mm-hmm. you know underground scenes like the Beatniks. And, oh, interesting. Um, okay. In the '60s, of course, and you know we were all anti-establishment, and mm-hmm. so we all got a a house together. When I turned 18, graduated high school. We got a house off State Street on 27th Street, and it became the SOC house. (laughs) Okay. I've heard of the SOC house, but I never went. Oh, yeah. Well, it was uh, mayhem, to say the least. (laughs) Because I started college right out of high school. Mm -hmm. So I was living in this party house. So I just stay at school all day. Uh-huh. So I could just work at school because uh-huh. there was no way to work at home yeah. with all the chaos. But we basically practiced in the basement, and there's about four or five of us guys that live there. And Friday night, we just wait for the party to show up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, underage kids and everyone would come and drink and carry on. And it was right by the Catholic church. And so Sunday morning, there'd be like beer cans all over the front lawn. And we'd see these churchgoers through our window just (laughs) frowning on us as they looked at our yard. So at that point, we started getting shows in Salt Lake City quite a bit. Oh, okay. Um, Puss had new, like he first, our first out of town show was Dissident Militia in Portland. And we played with Poison Idea. And that was like our big deal. Like, oh, wow, we're out of town. We're in Portland. We're in the the big city playing our punk rock. Man, this is something. And we played with Septic Death. And and then we went to Salt Lake with them once, too, and met Brad Raunch, who owns Raunch Records. 
and I believe he still owns it, still runs a retail store. Um, they were a cool record store alternative. And so he started, we connected with him and he started booking his shows. And we played with like Sam Hain, with Glenn Danzig. Mm-hmm. That was one of them, and DRI. I had no idea uh, you guys were doing that back then. I just thought, oh, you were, yeah. I mean, I had it in my head that you were just playing locally. That's amazing. Yeah. We, yeah. Um, played with Agnostic Front, just all these cool punk bands. Bread Ranch loved us. We were almost like a local Salt Lake band because mm. people would, you know, start recognizing our name and started meeting a lot of people. And that was cool. We'd, uh, we'd go to the liquor store and get Old English 800, <laughs> a case of cans of it, and take it to Salt Lake and sell it for a dollar a can. Cause <laughs> Like, their beer was like three percent or something yeah. man. and th- this beer was like seven percent <laughs> so that was probably part of our popularity but anyway yeah we put out a record 6.3 million acres it was our first full-length record we had a demo tape before that okay my brother he was the the force like he was the guy who got shit done and mm-hmm. You had all the contacts and did all the, you know, legwork. Because back then, you know, you had to mail letters, or get on the phone. Or, you know, trying to reach someone was way more difficult because, of course, they had to be there when you called mm-hmm. <laughs> close yeah. to their phone. Yeah. And so that was, you know, that was definitely different. It took a lot more work to mm-hmm. try to set stuff up. But it was definitely more DIY just yeah. in general, you know, everyone creating their own scenes and doing the legwork that you know the volunteer work to make all this happen yeah i that's i think that's a really interesting point because i mean i joked earlier about you know punk rock just being sort of a matter of convenience for someone who doesn't have the skill level of jimmy page but at the same time it it's it was an incredibly accessible art form, and I think that was what right. was so important about it. Um, and right. and and there is I do notice now that you mentioned that you talk about the DIY quality, and though I I do still think that there is an element of that in the counterculture scene here. I do see a lot of zines and things like that, but. At the same time, there's such a huge emphasis on social media and and creating this sort of following in, in that sense. It's yeah. a much sort of larger scale and much less personal. It's yeah, I agree. And I think that's what is causing so much so many social problems is for one, you have all this pressure to be amazing on your mm-hmm. social media because mm-hmm. it's the big lie of look how great my life is and, yeah you know look how good i look because i spent an hour getting the perfect photo mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just a whole lot of fakeness and i've struggled with that since social media started it's like i love seeing what my friends are doing especially from seattle and stuff that aren't in town but it just, you know, they say it it's kind of makes bums you out. And I didn't know if I believed that until I kind of would step away and go, I kind of feel better not 
<laughs> being on that very much. Yeah. There's something, some undertow that's just, that doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's so great for like promoting shows and stuff. But my dream's always been, what if we had a nonprofit social media platform that gave all the advertising funds to social causes? Mm. And, you know, it was a community, not one guy dictating the algorithms and manipulating elections and getting, you know, just the big grab Mm -hmm. that everyone, that the corporation seems, seemed to be doing nonstop annihilating the individual and returning to the community. Yeah. Yeah. And of course that's a pipe dream because there's no money in that. But anyway, you know, that's the idealist in me, I guess, which comes from part of the punk rock thing as well, which Mm -hmm. is, can't we all get along and take care of each other and Mm -hmm. coexist? Yeah. That sort of led me into my next question, which we've already partially covered, which is, you know, our impressions of the punk scene during that time and and the the younger generation um, or, or the differences between the two. What are some of the things you notice about because you seem like you're still somewhat involved in in the music scene in Boise and yeah. Um, so what are some of your impressions of of the scene as it is now? Well, I kind of see punk rock as, as skateboarding has become. It's become, one, accepted, and two, promoted and pushed as the new, as a new fashion or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more of a corporate takeover, I guess, of... Of, you know, it always, cool things always bubble up from the underground yeah. and then they get taken over mm-hmm. by the money and the, you know, the access to coolness or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of that. Like, I feel bad for kids kind of because they don't really have their own movement per se. It's kind of everything mishmashed from what came before them Hmm, interesting like it almost seems like hardcore punk came out of there's nothing left to do but scream and throw a tantrum Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that was kind of cool because that was and now it's just so tamed down you know even the hardest of music is like oh yeah i heard that then they've done that yeah and now it's even used commercially like yeah. You know, yeah. it's just bizarre to me that because I thought this will never be commercial. Mm-hmm. It's too, too rough and too antisocial. Hmm. But even the most antisocial things have become the norm, I guess. And I think part of that's just the bombardment of the media. Mm-hmm. It's like everything's always covered all the time. And I think it's harder to find your place because you're pushed and pulled it's not as organic i guess and that you know that's just kind of my general view yeah it's sort of like um at least this is my sort of impression of what you're saying there's so much going on that 
we're all just sort of um, overwhelmed by the amount yeah. of information and, and um, yeah, and it Definitely. becomes much more difficult to sort of actually plug into something and really connect. And there's, there's a loss of the sense of newness, maybe, of freshness. Right, yeah. When the internet came out, I thought this is going to empower the world mm. for change and for good. And, yeah. and what happened is they just flooded it with misinformation. And... I do think that, I mean, to be fair, if I look at it objectively, there has been a lot of good that's come out of it. Like I True. see... I see like with my kids, um, one of the areas that I notice most is the normalization of taking care of mental health, <laughs> you know? Right. Whereas, yeah, like, that is a good thing. Like, um, you know, when you and I were growing up, it was a really hush subject, like issues of, of, of mental health. If you felt like, you know, like I'm in therapy now and I, and there's no shame in that. Whereas in the right. 80s, there would have been. You know, for right. a lot of people, they would have felt that. But yeah, then, I agree. Uh, but there's then, on the other thing. hand, there's a lot of, I frankly, I feel evil that's come with it as well. And so, yeah, um, it just seems like you know, money wins because mm -hmm. they can flood and advertise and mm -hmm. you know manipulate now yeah. digitally, whereas before it was a lot harder to to reach people and change their minds you know now it's mm -hmm. a youtube video that is a complete lie it can get thousands of people worked up and, and there's no accountability which baffles me but it's also a question of free speech and you know it used to be someone said something and someone researched it and called bullshit and then everyone mm -hmm. would let it go now it's no but it's true and even though they say it's not blah, blah, you know, it yeah. just goes on yeah. and on and on. And even to where people that are intelligent and objective can't tell the truth anymore. Like, I feel myself getting suckered into the anonymous <laughs> YouTube feed, you know, like. Yeah, it takes a certain amount of vigilance, I think, to yeah. to remain objective. And Definitely. So I want to go back uh, a little bit to the the music scene and so you um, you later went on to become part of Tree People, Tree People, which was a band yeah. in Boise. And Doug Marsh was in the band who is now who, who has built a spill and they've become really well known. What is what is your continued involvement in the music scene in Boise? Are you in a band right now? Um, currently, I'm not. My last band was called The Hand. Mm hmm. And we were a three-piece, and that, that's kind of been around since 99, off and on. Um, but, well, I had kids and mm -hmm. dropped music for a few years just to focus on my kids. And yeah. Then my brother died, and then I got a divorce, and mm -hmm. my life kind of spiraled. And, um, but again, I just kept focusing on my kids and paying the mortgage and all that stuff you, mm -hmm. you're supposed to do as an adult. Yeah. <laughs> and so after my kids grew up, I was, got some new members of the hand and mm -hmm. Doug reached out, me, out to me and asked if I wanted to do some touring. And 
we did a West Coast tour in 2016. Um, and then we decided to have a Tree People reunion. So we started practicing that and got a bass player to fill in for Pat. So we did like a two-week tour. And then we did another little Northwest thing. And then COVID hit. So we just, <laughs> you know, we kind of did the reunion and relived the day and had fun and now it's just kind of too much work <laughs> to, <laughs> to fire it up and yeah. get the ball rolling. And, yeah. and that's kind of how I feel about music. You know, mm-hmm. there's no delusions of grandeur of <laughs> <laughs> selling records or, yeah. you know, and it's, and that's fine. It's like, I've done so much with it and had yeah. such a, a blessing of opportunity and, you know, hooking up with Doug, he was, we all moved to Seattle. We started Tree People in Boise in 1988. And our friend Ted Doyle moved to Seattle. And he was talking about the cool new music scene in Seattle. So we're like, let's get the hell out of here. See what we can do in Seattle. Yeah. So we all moved up there and landed on Capitol Hill rented this crack house <laughs> that we all lived in and, and you know this is the day when you could do that you could mm-hmm. just go and land as a band and mm-hmm. get jobs and pay the rent and yeah i feel so bad for kids because it's so unaffordable capitol hill now is all tech industry and yeah i can't imagine what rent is there we could have mm-hmm. never done that in this day yeah so i feel like opportunities kind of being squeezed like the arts are just getting hammered because of the affordability of life Mm -hmm. you have to have three minimum wage jobs to pay your rent now and Mm -hmm. it's just so sad because there's no time to create or just let your mind water wander it's just like you are always expected to do this and worry about that and what about my health care and, mm-hmm. and now the supreme court ruling against people it's just it's a mess trying to eke out your space in this modern world is chaotic yeah that kind of leads me into my last question which was um you know i wanted to know your thoughts on you know, we're comparing the counterculture of our generation and now the counterculture of this younger generation. And what do you feel we should, what, what do you feel the focus should be on? Like what, you know, what should people be fighting for? And it kind of sounds like this is, this is one of the main issues is just the, the lack of feasibility of a, of a, of a life where there's room for, where there's sort of emotional, physical space for creativity. Yeah. And that's, I think the biggest challenge is trying to get real in the unchecked capitalist mm-hmm. aggression and greed. Mm-hmm that has put even our own citizens under intense pressure and poverty 
to where we uh, we're getting less and less of a say as a majority. Yeah. You see that with the Supreme Court. 70% of people approve of a woman's right to choose. Mm-hmm. Yet the ruling class want to dictate their morals and their religious beliefs. And don't think for a second they'd give a shit about a baby. Because if they cared about people, we'd have health care and social safety nets. And they also just want the ability to tell people what the hell to do. It's really sad because when I started in punk rock, we had a lot more rights than we do now. And that's yeah. sad when you're going yeah. backward. Yeah. You know, this country's becoming so divided. <clears throat> Yeah. You know, Texas wants to secede, but what they don't realize is New York is the ones keeping them alive. (laughs) (laughs) They don't see that, you know, that it takes a nation to support itself. Mm, They just want what they want. And I think that's the problem on both sides is everyone's getting so polarized. and, And the propaganda on both sides are just fueling that. Yeah, And I think the reason for that is that the ruling class loves when the people are at odds because it Mm -hmm. it keeps them out of the picture and it's business as usual for them. And then that leads us back to the point of, you know, getting back to some sense of togetherness, you know, which is, I I think, something that music does so well, even punk rock that people think is all about aggression and, you know, and anger. And it is to a certain extent, but it's also about fulfilling a very basic human desire for um, agency and connected, a feeling of connectedness and to the greater society, which is which is something I think that we all want. Definitely. And the way I've always thought of it is music is the voice of the soul. Mm. And the soul has every range of emotion from anger to love to, you know, to disconnected, connected to bliss. And that's the purpose of music. It's not a destination, it's a journey, it's a moment in time that you're connected with something bigger than yourself. Yeah. And something when you put on a record, it's over. And then the only way to experience that is to replay that. It's mm-hmm. not it doesn't exist in, except for the moment you're listening to it. Well, which is to me an, an amazing gift of consciousness and being alive you know as the experience of of all of our senses not just music but what a lovely sentiment (laughs) 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 and it's a wonderful spot to end the interview i am so grateful that you agreed to speak with me today oh thank you so so much much for being a part of this oh i appreciate it i love to talk about the old Boise scene and Mm -hmm and you know inspire people to create art and live to their fullest yeah so i am super grateful as well let's stay in touch and uh maybe we could have coffee or something sometime that would be great i'd love that 
Right on. Thanks so much, <laughs> okay. Jen. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today. We'll be back next Monday. Tune in.